0: Hello and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast where
1: we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews or the detailed tour-level
0: analysis we have you covered
1: Hello everyone, this is an incredibly special uh, and very different podcast episode Uh, I think 10 days ago when we recorded the last episode of Tennis with an Accent Skip and I were on the phone, and we accidentally told each other, or we learned, that we both will be in Ishtaril in the same week to watch tennis. So since then, I thought, you know, when we do watch tennis, we'll exchange some notes and me more uh, learning from Skip and probably record a podcast. So here, are, here we are. It's, uh, I think, 9.40 or 9.35 in the morning, and the lobby of the hotel Skip is staying, so you hear some nice music in the background and on that note let me bring Skip here Skip how does it feel to do a live podcast <laughs> a, a, a little bit different than talking into a microphone sitting in my dining room
0: I'll say that for sure in much nicer environments not that my dining room suffers but
1: yeah and I always thought like since my in-laws live in the Philadelphia area that one of these days I'm going to go you know make a lunch plan with you and you know talk tennis you know all evening long but little did i know like you know fate works quite mysteriously or quite differently and here we are in Portugal uh, first time meeting each other through Tennis with an Accent and Matt and all the people that who have made this connection possible so yeah very excited to you know pick your brain on what we both have seen in the last two or three days so let's start right uh, for the big name we both uh, saw the second set of Dominic team sat next to each other next to each other Uh, again this is an opinion exercise uh, let's start with body language. Again, team had a couple of double faults in both games that he got broken. What were your observations, I mean, uh, on his body language in this match? I know hindsight is it's easy to say this, but I, I rely that, you know, you were pretty neutral when the match was happening and you know, pure recollections. Um, probably the best thing that I can say is that I was there with
0: my wife, who has seen tennis over the years. She does not play. Uh, She understood, because we talked about it, what the situation was with team coming back, having won the U.S. Open, the heir apparent for Clay Court Tennis King in the world prior to his injury and COVID pandemic, and now he's coming back after injury and struggling to regain his form. And she said she felt uncomfortable and sad watching the match. So it was that obvious that he was not playing with his chest out, full of confidence, to someone who's not a tennis aficionado, that that would be the best thing I could say. And that sounds dismissive and perhaps uh, uh, superior or, or demeaning to Dominic Thiem, and I don't mean for it to be that way at all, but it is. it was difficult to watch, to see that he didn't have the confidence and joy and uh, swagger that we expect to see from someone with his CV.
1: Now, in your tennis watching, I know you are a bigger nerd and bigger historian than, you know, I could aspire to be.
0: Uh, you're, you're, be careful about that, because I
1: assure you, your
0: your encyclopedic knowledge of matches in particular is far greater than mine. I do not recall the,
1: the minutiae of matches the way you do, but go ahead. That's, that's very kind of. I can talk Becker, I can talk Safin, I can talk Federer, but I don't know the overall arc of the sport like you do. But again, uh, team's injury result, right? We live in the era of Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic. All these guys have made, you know, tennis look like a silly business. I mean, you know, they're so great that anyone growing up thinks it's very easy to come back from injuries. So using Dominic team as a use case. Uh, Throw in a name or two when you've seen a superstar Who's taken a sabbatical or maybe a longer injury break, and then his his or her bout with struggles with confidence, and because that's very evident when we look at team. I'm not going to break down. I don't have the ability to break down his technical struggles, what's going through, but doesn't look like the same guy. So any other trajectory that you remember, uh, someone who was at the top of the sport or close to the top, comes back and is taking months or even a year, or maybe it's never the same. Well, I don't know. I'll I have to think hard to come back
0: to think about someone who had the same kind of success and then really didn't come back. But you have to name Serena as somebody who had multiple medical issues and then came back and worked through them. And you you obviously have to name Nadal. So those two, although they both returned to success, in terms of somebody who... Oh, yes, uh, Miroslav Machir, who was really undone by his back. Uh, That's a a very obvious one. Uh, Less organic is Monica Sellis with Stabbing. Clearly not the same player afterwards, although she she picked up another Big Four title and was still a force on the tour, but not the uh, force of nature that she had been prior to that. Tony Roche would be another one, undone by his elbow to a great degree, Um, heir apparent to to Labour and Roseball and Newcomb. Uh, People forget... People don't know who know of him now as a coach. That he was Labor's uh, opponent in when Labor won the U.S. Open and clinched the Grand Slam in 1969. Labor won that uh, rather Roche won the French and featured in a number of other major finals. So Tony Roche would be another uh, to some degree. Actually, Margaret Court uh, was it, it was always hampered by her back, but she returned to success. Who else uh, left because of injury? To after having great success, uh, those are the ones that maybe uh, come to mind most strongly. I can't think of anybody else. MacInnes, uh, ja, John, John, John Michael Gamble, I think, also ended up uh, doing really well, making a name for the tour, and then injuries kind of uh, pulled the rug out from underneath him. Although I don't know the details as well.
1: Yeah, non-injury related. I think MacInnes and are sabbatical. Right, they never are the same players.
0: Well, how about, how about Agassiz? I mean, if you're talking about sabbatical, and yeah. really walking away and then climbing back up, I, there aren't many stories to equal that of Agassiz.
1: Absolutely. So, again, we both have, a, I mean, I have a tendency to digress and take conversation in different places. But let's go back to team for a second. Were there any glimpses uh, yesterday where you could, you saw like, you know, we saw the highlight of the player he was and there's no denying that he could probably find his groove a uh, lot was made out of the Ben Shelton win, but we know like Shelton wasn't doing too well. Uh, there's not much floating in the social media, but talking strictly about team, did you see any glimpses of the guy, you know, who rode his forehand to you know a lot of success in clay and won the U.S. Open?
0: Well, I'll just be a little bit more specific about Shelton. You, know, you alluded to it, but I don't know how commonly it's known. It's pretty well known here in Estoril that he was literally sick um, the morning of his match with Team. So it really explains a lot. Which is not to say the Team might not have won. But the two and two win was a little surprising. I don't think either of us expected it to be that decisive on the score box. In terms of what we saw last night, certainly there were points where he would, he he, he cracked one backhand down the line that was just as, as good as you're going to see ever, really. There were some forehands, occasionally a serve. He hit one to the outside in the ad box, kicked, and it was about, oh, I would say maybe two feet up from the service line and eight inches inside from the sideline at 98 miles an hour on a second serve. And it just set up the point beautifully and it was hit decisively. But being a top-plight player, period, and much less returning to the heights the team had, is doing that consistently, not doing it once. So, yes, as you said, we saw glimpses, but he would go back to do it again and it just wasn't there for him. And I would say there was one thing that we saw... The one thing we saw more than anything else with him where he, I'm going to say fell short, but it's actually the other way around, was he just couldn't seem to get the spin on his forehand to get the ball to come down, and the forehands were flying long that really were rather surprising. And it wasn't that he never missed in the net, because he did, but mostly it was forehands especially that were flying long. The other thing that was really surprising was... As I recall, it was the second point in the final game. He was serving, I think, at our end of the court, and they had a long rally. And he tried a drop shot at the end of maybe a nine or ten-stroke rally. And he wasn't really well positioned, and the drop shot wasn't even well hit. It was a, it was just a, it, it was a club player shot selection, and it suggested a lack of. Mental strength, mm. as much as anything else, that that's what he would go to. You know, everyone would talk about how Djokovic would use the drop shot as a bailout years ago, because there, for whatever reason he didn't have the feeling that he could continue the rally, or he, he would he would bail out with a drop shot. Well, this didn't even look that good. It was it was shocking for somebody of Team's background, really, and and, and tough to watch because you just feel the the, the lack of confidence emanating from them
1: and one more question on body language do you see a correlation in this match with the scoreboard pressure do the two have a commonality as this match progress
0: well there's any player worth their salt is, is aware of what the score is and adjusts to, you know, to some degree along those lines and as an aside i'll say that i can't imagine in in today's game it, it in the indoor arenas particularly but although sometimes outdoors i had it in miami where you're playing and there's a an LED scoreboard surrounding the court, and you're walking up to serve, and it's flashing break point. You know, I, I can't imagine what that adds to it, let alone being in a stadium with thousands of people. You now have break point flashing in your eye as you tow the line to serve um, at 30, 40. Um, I, yes, I think the scoreboard pressure certainly hurts. Uh, it, it's If you're having problems with confidence, and you're down 4-1 in the second set, having lost the first, the score doesn't it's it's kind of hard to ignore the score you know when you're winning or you're playing confidently the score is something that you 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 are more able to take things a point at a time or a shot at a time when you're losing the score and and you're not playing well you're really feeling a lack of confidence then all of a sudden that becomes a much larger obstacle in your mind it's harder to ignore it it's the opposite of playing in the now i suppose
1: all right, so we'll move on to another player. Uh, but uh, a quick shout to Team and his coach Masu, who was gracious enough to give me an interview despite his charge lost. Uh, and those of you who've listened, uh, the reason I didn't ask about Team in uh, the interview because uh, Masu told me, you know, he's okay to talk about his career and his coaching. But you know, since Team is in tournament uh, playing actively, we can't talk about uh, the game for Team, and that's why you won't find much Team in that interview. Uh, but uh, me and Skip both, you know, would like many tennis fans to see Team come back to his uh, old self, and uh, there were some glimpses this week for sure. Uh, so let's talk about Quantan Alice You know, the guy, Skip. Since you came here, I've been asking you about, and you saw two complete matches against two different opponents. Granted, RBA is not what he used to be, but he put on a much better display than Dominic Team. So your first impressions on on the you know the, the tall Frenchman. You know, he exuded power a lot of uh, touch, wasn't afraid to come to the net, but I'm sure you can word these things better. What did you see in the four sets of Ali's so far?
0: Well, I, the best thing I can say is I'm, I'm going to actually uh, read word for word what I wrote and shared to, with socket what I wrote to a friend of mine. I said Halis was very impressive versus RBA, Roberto Batista Agud, last night. <coughs> Excuse me. Whatever can be said about RBAs being past his prime, Halis displayed a very heady mix of power, touch, and guile. There were no examples where any of it was over the top. Not too close to the lines too often, never too cute, no horribly advised drop shots, all done with solid movement serves, ground strokes, and volleys. Um, Sakop and I agreed that it could be it's just taken this long for Hollies to find the right recipe and balance of his tools. It's typical for players with lots of choices in a more rounded game to find a way to actually apply their strengths against more narrowly defined uh, opponent styles. That... uh, it can't be ignored that this is, I think, his third quarterfinal in three tournaments. And that's quite an achievement. He's, what, 26 years old? Yeah. So it's, it's not like he's new on the, on the tour. Now the next thing is, as Saka has put it, this is a small sample size. It's not a large history of matches. Whether he can maintain it, it remains to be seen. And it's always easy to forget that one of the challenges of winning more often is that you're also playing more often. Can you play? Actually, Zapata Morales this week mm-hmm. is, is one of those examples. He really came out after a, a good win uh, in the previous round against um, Herkocz. Against I mean, uh, which was not particularly, I thought, d- demanding as, as a as a match overall. It certainly what didn't feature a lot of really long points. It wasn't a short match, but there wasn't a lot of really long points. But Morales definitely came out. Zapata Morales definitely came out more flat last night. But doing this week in, week out, it's one of the things that was um, kind of under the radar impressive about the big three was that to to make the finals or the semifinals, week in, week out, is a lot more tennis. And mentally and physically it's a lot tougher. So for Halis, will he be able to do that? Remains to be seen. We'll find out. Small sample size, as Sakip says, but it's certainly impressive and it's hard to understand why if the mental aspect of it and the physical tiredness aspect of it doesn't affect his game. That He shouldn't be, I, I would certainly think, 10 to 20 in the world to, to look at him. But as we know, it, it, tennis is not just about hitting balls.
1: Absolutely. And, and another guy that whom you, me, uh, Matt, and who everybody looks up to in our circle is Merth Ertunga. And I was running my notes by Marth when um, Alice was supposed to play RBA because I had seen him take out the local Hope, Borgia, uh, the night before. And Marth said the same thing. He's surprised that it's taken Halis this long to put it all together. He rates Halis's game right up with the other Frenchman, uh, Umbert and he thinks, yeah, uh, top 30 or 20, you know, that's the kind of residency Halis should apply. So, yeah, today he's a big semifinal against uh, Kasparud, which uh, will tell more about uh, the Frenchman's progress. So Zapata Mirai is uh, the other guy that we saw two days in a row. And we both were talking about a typical clay coder versus, say, someone like a Horkach or a who were playing somewhat of a hardcore tennis here. So your thoughts on the two playing styles, what did you pick on Horkach and Kachmanovic, and why was it different than, say, a a or Chikinato?
0: Well, first of all, I would say that even though there is greater homogeneity across the tennis-playing styles today so that the nature or the, the previous... Ability to say that someone was just a clay clay court specialist or a a fast court specialist is less easily applied today than it used to be. I still believe that it holds true. There are players who we really don't see very much of until the clay court season comes along. There tend to be more of those because there are fewer fast courts, so there are fewer fast court specialists. Anyone that doesn't believe that Maxime Cressy should be doing well when the tour gets to England is probably not paying attention, and it is clearly court speed related. So the same thing exists in reverse, which is to say play courts. When you see this tennis live, which Sakhib and I encourage everybody to do if you're able to, you become aware of how much spin there really is on the ball. You're not so aware of it on television. And the speed, the speed of the ball is that much more impressive as well and when you combine that with the ball being hit a good 12 feet over the net and just ripped from the baseline you understand how much spin is necessary to bring that ball back down into the court when you see Zapata Morales or Chechenado, and you compare them to her catch, where you can pretty much come, cl- especially on his backhand, you can come close to reading the type of ball, the, what what brand of tennis ball it is as it comes over the net. You understand that there are differences in how people play, and those differences make their games more or less amenable to certain surfaces. And on clay, where the ball wants to sit up a little bit more, and it's harder to put the ball away because it's easier to defend to get to balls because they stand up. Having that spin and the ability to keep the ball in play with greater margin for error more frequently means that those players, Zapata, Morales, and Cecchinato, have an advantage over somebody like Herjkacz, who just has to have a tremendously high shot tolerance given his style of stroke production yesterday with Kekmanovic, who plays a not dissimilar game to her catch. He just doesn't have quite the size. or He certainly doesn't have the size. He's a full five to six inches shorter, um, or the power off the ground by virtue of being having shorter levers, but he had a higher shot tolerance, and it's as much mental as it is anything else. It just has the ability to apply yourself to each ball with what is essentially a lower margin for error, because you hit the ball more flat. I think probably Kekmanovic hits the ball with a little bit more spin than her catch, but nonetheless, certainly less than with Zapatamirais or Checanado. The Checonado yesterday, we were just, ast- not yesterday, uh, I guess it was uh, Thursday. No, it was yesterday. It was yesterday, yeah, uh, uh, yesterday, yesterday, yesterday the day session. We were just, uh, sitting with my uh, mate Graham, we were just astounded at the second serve, kick serves. He was hitting the ball in the box, and if the, his opponent, if it hadn't been touched by a racket, it literally could have bounced up into the stands that were a good 30 feet from mm-hmm. the baseline um, after landing in the box. It was just an astounding amount of spin, and that's very difficult to defend against. To, 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 to simply come back with a, a strong neutral return, much less a return that gives the receiver an advantage in the ensuing rally
1: is really, really tough. It was amazing, just amazing amounts of spin. All right, so your impression on the top seed Casper, who made quick work of Sebastian Baez in the last, the second night match from yesterday? My impression is that when I looked up Baez's
0: ranking at 35 in the world, I think 35, that I was, might, be, might have been 32, that I was pretty surprised that he was that high. And I suspect that it's because of recent results, I think, on the South American tour, where he had a number of good results and broke through a little bit, um, and less a matter of... Uh, a, Points from last year after today's date. I would suggest that it's probably more recent uh, results because last night's match looked like a he match was between. The defending champion here. Okay. Yeah. But um, so there you are, Sakib's greater uh, understanding of match, uh, in, in inherent match history knowledge versus mine. But nonetheless, um, it, it clearly was a matchup between players of different no, caliber you, but, last night.
1: Let me night. just add you, you're not way off here because. <clears throat> Uh, during last year, I think, after Wimbledon or something, Baez went on 11-match to all-match losing streak. If I'm, you know, I think I'm in the right neighborhood. I don't know exact number of matches. And then he picked up some wins this year in the, the golden swing in Latin America. But right. you're right. So I think he's struggling to put a lot of wins back-to-back.
0: Right. And I think last night it, it, last night at a certain point, uh, again, Graham and I were sitting together and talking. It felt like this is Baez was a player who... Recognized that he was playing somebody who was simply better than he was, and he was pulling the trigger earlier than he might have, or trying to hit the ball half again as close to the lines as he might otherwise have, because he had to do that, and other- otherwise he wasn't going to be able to stay in the match versus Rude. And then, of course, we know that that's not a winning strategy, having to pull the trigger too early or hit closer to the lines than you might otherwise. And Rude pretty routined him, I would say, mm. certainly after the first set.
1: Yeah, this tournament had like a couple guys' team, and Rude. Win back-to-back matches for the first time in a long time. I think Rude first time this year, uh, and then Team first time I think in six or seven months. So, taking the like a deeper dive into clay movement and uh, footwork, so, the prism of those two elements, who impressed you the most among the men you've seen here?
0: Uh, who impressed me the most? Checking I, the, the amount of spin on auto's balls was just astounding. I, um, it, it's not really necessarily a, a statement. It's not like Checcanotto's A World Beater by virtue of his record, but it was pretty astounding. And the other thing I would say would really be Caspar Rude. And the one thing I would commented on last night when we were watching was Rude's forehand just is... The sound is very different than everybody else's. Everybody else is a pop.
1: Hmm.
0: And Rude, you get this... It's like someone hitting the drums with a brush rather than with a stick. And uh, so it's it's sneaky, spinny. Um, I don't know that she's... Creating the, the biggest MPH With his forehand But as we all know It's not all about Miles per hour Exclusively
1: So and yeah. Movement and footwork
0: uh. uh, I A number of times I watched Rude's feet Just watching his feet It was pretty astounding There also was a I don't know if you saw her But when we walked out From one of the day matches There was a little girl Hitting on One of the courts No I missed that Yeah I'm, I don't know She might have been ten. With a guy who I don't know, father, coach—I don't really know—and we just so we just sat there and watched her feet for a couple minutes because this kid, kid had feet were constantly hopping. And then I mentioned to Graham that there is a, a YouTube video that you should take a look at of Steffi Graf's footwork. Put in Steffi Graf, feet or footwork, and it's just her feet while she's hitting uh, on the hard courts in Las in Las Vegas because I know the courts. I've been there, and it's. It's a beautiful thing to watch. It's just, it's it's exhausting. I don't know how you could keep that up. She evidently did. And this little girl's feet really looked very much like that, which is not to say that she's going to be Steffi Graf, but it was great footwork. Watching Rude last night looked the same way. It was just constant short motion. Um, the kind of thing that if you don't zero in on watching a player and their feet and said you're watching the point, you don't really get to appreciate. So. It's a good point, it's a good exercise to do To do that, to watch that way Sure, so let's
1: end this chat with making a couple of uh, You know, looking forward to a couple of the semi-finals And by the time this episode is released Depending on, you know, uh, how my day is uh, The results might be out Or results may be close to be out So Halis and Rude. I picked Halis the last two matches Against RBA and team, I was convinced You know, his level is going to outdo now, his opponent's level, but today I'm not convinced because I still think Rude has a gear and keep Hollis engaged in longer rallies. How do you see that matchup?
0: The question for me in that is where Rude is in his uh, feeling, his, feeling his, his oats on clay at this point. I think that in a world where Rude is playing well, I don't think Rude has to play as well within his. Uh, parameters as Halis does in order to beat Rude. I think Rude has to, has to play better. Whether Rude is at that that the point right now in his game or not is another question. Experience matters. There's obviously a lot of pressure on Halis in this situation. He hasn't been here as often as Rude, so how he'll deal with that. Again, back to Sacks's comment about small sample size so far with Halis, you don't know how he'll do when he's when the stakes are larger, of course, he's not yet having to beat somebody he's supposed to beat in the semifinals. But nonetheless, it's a situation he's less accustomed to than Casper Ruud. I would probably give—I would give Ruud the the edge here, but not as much as I would word Ruud playing at the top of his game coming into this.
1: And you—you you use the word pressure, which you know sometimes in this in this age where we're fascinated by the Djokovic, Federer, Nadal and Murray and, you know, all the big names. Uh, and usually we don't hear the word pressure in a 250 semi final. And I, I believe pressure exists everywhere because Halis is making, is on totally new grounds. You know, because of a deep run here, he misses out on the Monte Carlo Qualis, I believe and then uh he has to make more points to, for the ranking to go up so he doesn't have to play qualies or he's in the short list of qualies so again uh you know playing tennis for money is always tough. sometimes we just overlook so many facts and let's let's bring the second semifinal checkinado and kasmanovich what are you looking for there i'm picking kasmanovich uh, in in that match how do you see that match um I, it's, I think it comes down
0: to whether Kekmanovic can drive through the spin that is creating. It's, you know, is a more hardcore style of Kekmanovic able to be controlled against Cechanato's more traditional, these days, clay court style. And it's not as if Cechanato is not going to come in, and he served in volley some previously, so he's able to show variety. I would give the slight edge to Kekmanovic here, but I would not be surprised if Cechanato simply became a wall that Kekmanovic could not punch his way through with his more uh, piercing, uh, flat, more flat, anyway, uh, ground strokes. But it's a 55-45 looking at it. That's kind of the way I would see it. I I
1: don't think seeing either of them as the winner would surprise me. All right, so the last thing is even I'll weigh in. I'll go first, and then Skip can hopefully back me up or give, you know, his opinion. h Open as the venue. I think a very scenic place. It's another Monte Carlo, a postcard kind of an event. So if you're planning a clay vacation, watching clay court tennis, coming from even the U.S., wherever, I think I haven't gone to many locations outside the United States. This is my second clay event other being Roland Garros in 2016, that's a major. So, of course, a lot of mystique, a lot of aura there. But for this pure week, uh, I think this is a great venue. It's in Qashqai, Estrella, a very scenic area. Uh, You know, you look at the Atlantic from your hotel, from the court, everywhere. It's just one of those places to come watch world-class tennis. And it's a pity that now these tournaments are 11-day long, Madrid and Rome and Ishtore lost its place in the calendar, which was usually succeeding Monte Carlo. Now it's preceding Monte Carlo. So in the future, uh, they will struggle to get big names because after Miami, the top names will hone their skills as a practice week rather than come here. But you always have Aroud or Horkach who are looking for some fine-tuning. Uh, but I think it's a shame that uh, ATP uh, made those changes and this tournament uh, got impacted a bit. But uh, now I'm going to give to Skip his views on this facility and the field and the and the place. No, I, I would
0: completely agree, Sakib. I think that tennis fans should make a point of attending tournaments like these two fifties that here right now in Estoril, or in going on right now in Houston or in Charleston. I think tennis benefits tremendously from these tournaments, and it's too easily. Uh, Cat, these, these this level tournament is too easily cast aside in the, cons, in the cons, consideration of importance in the sense that this is a tournament that's attended by a tremendous proportion of people who are not going to travel to Madrid or to Rome or to Paris, much less the US Open and so this is a way for live tennis, live professional tennis to be seen by locals and the Enthusiasm shown in the crowds is tremendous, and I was thinking in preparation for today about Charleston, the WTA side happening this week right now, and look how long the history is in Charleston. And I know their attendance records are great, and it's not because of television. It's because, although obviously that pays, that plays into it, but it's because the locals support it and they're proud of having the tennis tournament there. There's a strong tennis community, and it 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 serves a purpose within. The, the promotion of the sport for the fans to see live tennis in these smaller venues. The tournament here has been really well run. The setting is beautiful. Estoril and Cascais are gorgeous. Uh, our mutual friend Miguel Ciabra is doing a great job with his on-court interviews. And the media here is well set up. It's really a pleasure. And for me, coming from Philadelphia, it was actually a direct flight to Lisbon and then Estuary just 40 minutes or so by car or by train, so it's an easy thing, and I would encourage people to do it. It's really worthwhile.
1: Yeah, echo everywhere, skip skip. So, this is Sakeb and Skip signing off. Hopefully, you catch the semis, and we are looking forward to the semis as well. Talk soon. Bye. Take care. Thank you very much, Sakeb.